And uh, this Tuesday evening, um, I wasn't feeling well. And uh, just a couple of hours before service, um, when uh, I, I, I didn't feel like I could, I could speak on Tuesday evening, uh, my father-in-law, who I had already planned for him to speak for us today, stepped in and ministered the word of the Lord on uh, Tuesday night. And there was a powerful demonstration of the Holy Ghost. And uh, there was at least one, maybe even two, that received the Holy Ghost here on Tuesday night. And people just ran to the altar without an altar call. This is a powerful man of God that we have here with us. And uh, we're going to turn him loose to minister the word of the Lord to us. And the people from Fort Wayne are excited to hear their pastor preach because they've been in revival for 14 weeks and they haven't heard their pastor preach. So they had to come all the way from Fort Wayne to hear their pastor preach. And uh, so we're so glad to have Brother Keller. He uh, took a church in Indiana that uh, was uh, um, a church, ran about 100, 150 people. And uh, God has sent great revival to that church. And they moved two or three times because of expansion needs to larger facilities. Now they have a, a, a large and beautiful facility in Fort Wayne and a great group of people. Uh, upwards of five to six hundred that gather together on Sunday and it's a powerful church where miracles happen and my father-in-law is a man of evangelism he's a man of prayer and he's a man that believes for miracles and he is a great convictional preacher and I'm glad to have introduced to you today uh, brother David Keller to come minister the word of the Lord praise God let's stand and make him welcome right now If you believe all that, stay around after a while. I'll, I'll straighten all that out. But uh, we are honored, deeply honored to be here today with all of you. And you have been invaded by Fort Wayne, Indiana today. I'm telling you, we have, of course, we're honored to have uh, all of our home folks here come out for the wedding that will be taking place uh, Wednesday. Why don't you be seated here for a moment? And, um, of course, first... We give honor to Pastor Brown and Sister Brown. And what a powerful, powerful worship service here this afternoon. I, uh, I feel like I'm in a youth service. All the young, good-looking people with all the energy, and then, and then here I go. <laughs> but uh, we're going to try not to get out of step too far here. But uh, as we said, we're, we're honored to have those from Fort Wayne, um, and, and we're delighted that our son is marrying a wonderful young lady, uh, Shanna. We have known her all of her life, and uh, then Dallas, uh, would you stand, Dallas? Dallas uh, is, is on staff with us, has been for a long time, and uh, thank you, Dallas. When Dallas, Dallas is a very talented young man when he was just really, really small. Uh, I had a four-wheel drive truck. We used to go out and sling mud and so forth. And and Dallas would draw pictures of dinosaurs, and I put them back and all that. But now he's on our staff and a great contributor to Abundant Life. And we just just love this young man. And Landon, his mother and dad have have started and built a great Asian work there within our congregation, and um, and raised two fine boys there. 
But uh, uh, John and Brenda, I want to thank you. You have raised two wonderful, wonderful children. And um, God bless you for that. So honored to have both of you here today. And then Brother Pastor Brown has already introduced some. But Brother Locke is on our uh, trustee board. His wife is on our praise team. And, and just on and on. Been there years. My mother-in-law, uh, of course, you have heard that which just spoken about her and my brother-in-law. Wonderful people. Thank you for coming today and so forth. Amen. If you have your Bibles. And uh, we are always honored to be here in this great and growing church. This church has a wonderful, wonderful future. And it is amazing what God is doing right here in this congregation. I just, and of course, my daughter um, up here leading, or not leading, but in the worship team has been, and always since she was very small, involved in the services along with our son. And then it was just very, very touching today to see my beautiful oldest granddaughter, Cambria, up here in the worship team also. So just uh, uh, very special time for us. Brother, Pastor Brown has always left an impression in our house. Someone reminding us the other night, last night, about the impression that he made on us to begin with. He uh, was trying to, I think, impress my daughter and young, strapping young man decided he was going to get on my treadmill. And he got to running and running and kept upping the speed on it. And, um, and as it got to a certain fevered pitch, he couldn't figure out how to get off. Well, the treadmill did it for him and threw him off, and for a long time I had two impressions <laughs> from the backside in my drywall. <laughs> so that was his first impression. <laughs> but we love Pastor Brown, a wonderful, wonderful husband and, and father to our to our wonderful grandchildren. And so, the Lord is good. Now, if you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12, and I'll be reading uh, from verses 15 through 24. Thank you for allowing me to do the impromptu thing on last Tuesday night. You responded well to that, and I will, I will try not to be too lengthy here this afternoon because these afternoon services can get um, a little sidetrack for the future of the evening. But um, all right. So let me, let me give you a title of which to wrap your mind around, kind of a continuity of thought today, and, um, and then also a little image here. I'd like to preach you for a little while today from a subject, Rebuilding Your Broken 
world. Rebuilding your broken world. Now I recognize the fact that this has been a very, very, very uh, high service, exciting worshiping and all of that. Uh, and we have rejoiced in the Lord, but I also recognize the fact that in a congregation like this, there are people that have come that have not been able to join in with the festivity and the worship and so forth because perhaps your world somewhere in life has been broken. And you have looked for answers to restore and repair that, but have not been able to do so so far. I want to try to help you with that in the next um, little while this evening or this afternoon. Let me give you a little background here. Our, our scripture setting uh, goes back here to a, a man that probably most of us recognize in, in uh, scripture by the name of David. David was known as a sweet singer of Israel. David is also known as a man that, um, that uh, was a man after God's own heart. And um, David, uh, from, a, from a very, very uh, long, far-off view, seemed like somebody that we want to be. David, a man after God's own heart. But I remind you about the life of David was fraught about with difficulty and sadness and sorrow and pain and heartache and particularly that of failure. Matter of fact, one of his greatest failures is what we want to talk about today, but it also is one of his greatest triumphs in life. So along with the negative, we want to somehow conclude with the positive and let you know that there is a God in the midst of the storm and the failure in your life today. But, uh, but let me just preface this by, by telling you a little background here. David, of course, was, as we said, the sweet singer of Israel. He was Israel's greatest hope. Saul, King Saul, had fallen, this little shepherd boy by the name of David, somewhere and uh, out in the fields called, anointed by God, the horn of oil poured over his head by the prophet. And David was destined to be a, the king in Israel, and they would sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And so David rose quickly in the ranks of prominence and power, becoming one of the greatest kings that Israel ever ever had. But at the pinnacle and the peak of his power, David made a horrible mistake. I'm sure not the first mistake he made, but it was one of the most notable mistakes. He was uh, probably about 50-some years of age now, and we find that Israel had gone into battle, and David was tired, and so he stayed home from battle. And there is where he saw a woman bathing herself uh, as they customarily did on the flat roofs of that time by the name of Bathsheba. Most of you know the story well. And of course, David um, uh, looked and he lusted and he took, therefore bringing about the greatest downfall of one of the patriarchs of the entire Old Testament. But also it's one of the richest stories that are available to us, giving us a wealth of information and insight about the mercy and the grace of God. And so after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, that's not all he did, but he had her husband taken to the forefront. And I know most of you know the story well, but for some of you who may not, just a little background here. Uh, he had had uh, Uriah, uh, taken, her husband, taken to the forefront of the battle 
and killed. And so we find out that was because he knew now that, um, that Bathsheba was expecting. And he, he committed one sin, tried to cover up another sin, one lie covering up another lie, which, which really never works. And so we find now that, uh, that uh, Nathan had walked into the house. Nathan is the prophet, walked into the house of David and said, you know, David, I want to tell you a story. Uh, there was a man that was a very, very uh, wealthy man, and uh, and he uh, he had a lot of sheep and a lot of, had a lot of goods and belongings. And so there was also another man that that was a poor man that had just one sheep. And the rich man had a guest come by, and said to uh, and said, "I want to prepare a meal for my guest." And so and so he had had someone take the one little lamb of this family that was poor, and he had the animal killed, the lamb, and put on the dinner table for his guest. And so Nathan walks in and tells him all this story. Well, David was, was enraged with, with anger and said, you show me the man, and that man uh, will surely die, and he will have to repay this poor man fourfold for what he has done. And of course, I'm cutting through a lot of the story here, and Nathan stretched forth his, his aged bony finger and pointed it in the face of David and said, Thou art the man. And so David, of course, recognizing uh, his error and his fault of taking the only wife of Uriah, having Uriah killed, and, and then Uriah and the affair that he had with her and the illegitimate child. And so David said, The anger of the Lord is a peace from you, but but the child that you have with Bathsheba is going to die. And so uh, the child grew sick, the Bible says, and David went into fasting and into prayer and sought God that he might heal the child and the child might live. But it was not in the plan of God. This was a retribution from God. Uh, and because of, of a lot of theological background reasoning there, but long story short here, we find that, that the life of David now had reached the, the zenith and the height of its, uh, of its influence. And now Nathan said, the sword of the Lord shall never depart from the house of David. And so David prayed and sought God that the child would live. But, but, uh, and so no one went in and disturbed David while he was in his, in his chamber and as the child lay sick. And finally, uh, uh, we find that that the whispering servants came and told David, and or David came and heard them whispering and said, indeed, is the child dead? And they said, yes, the child is dead. David got up from his mourning and from his fasting and from his prayer, and he dried his eyes. And, um, and then we see that um, our story picks up there in verse number 15. And, they, and Nathan the prophet departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in lay upon all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David feared to tell him the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will we then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw 
that his servants whispered. David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and they did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious unto me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And of course you know Solomon became the greatest king that Israel ever had. And so we find and, and get a very, very keen insight here into one of the greatest human figures upon that, that has ever lived. And then as, as he, of course, we gain this insight, we see that David's world was broken. It was shattered. And so I just want to underscore the fact here that not only uh, is it a fact that our lives are sometimes broken, but it's just a fact of life. The fact is that our world, my friend, is a broken world. The dark threads of brokenness we are reminded daily are woven into the tapestry of life from the broken wing to the broken window, from broken dreams to our broken lives. Pain and suffering, and I'm talking to somebody today and perhaps all of us because we have all experienced this, but pain and suffering are the direct results of a broken world. The sad fact of the matter is that no one, no one is exempt from brokenness. We all at some time or another experience the pain of life and the pain of brokenness. If you have not yet, then don't feel left out because somewhere in life you will. It may be the pain of associate that is associated with the loss of a loved one, a gut-wrenching divorce, the loss of an income, the loss of health, or simply you feel that life has been unfair to you and it has passed you by. Sometimes, for no reason, life just breaks. You can be driving down the road, minding your own business. Somebody blows through a stoplight, you're broadsided. That's simply the way life is. As strange as it may seem, I want to try to bring some, some understanding to this thing that is called brokenness in a broken world. And so as strange as it may seem, brokenness does have its place in our world and in our lives. Without brokenness, I remind you that there would be absolutely nothing in this world of value. I remind you that the wild horse is of no value unless it is first broken. Everything that we use for our life and comfort comes from brokenness, and so it is. The clouds break to bring forth the rain. The soil must be broken up in order to grow a crop. 
the medal right here in this stand, we are reminded again, uh, has to be somehow melted down under the intense heat and pressure and molded. Grapes, we understand, you go out to the hills of California, the grape vineyards. It's a beautiful sight, but the grapes must be harvested. Then they must go through the crushing process before they can ever be poured into the chalice and served to the guest. Everything of value first must be broken. Before God can make the nation of Israel, he had to break a man by the name of Jacob. Before the little boy's lunch of five loaves and two fishes could feed the multitude, I remind you it first had to be broken. Before the sweet fragrance of the alabaster box could fill the room with its rich and poignant perfume and poured upon the feet of Jesus, the alabaster box had to be broken. Otherwise, the ointment and the perfume would have stayed in the box. Before Christ could save a world or one lost soul from sin and hell, we are reminded his body had to be broken. For you see, 1 Corinthians 11.24 tells us, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Most everything in life that is of value has to be beaten, broken, or crushed before it is of value. It was the famed Ernest Hemingway, the renowned poet that said out of his own broken life and his own inner turmoil, the world breaks everyone, and afterward many are strong in the broken places. Years earlier, it was the philosopher that had offered the blunt insight and version, declaring, what does not kill me makes me stronger. Since so medically the brokenness goes on, we are told that the strongest part of the human bone structure is where one time that bone had been broken and healed. And so brokenness is a part of our world. I read a book a while back, several years ago, that was called Strong in the Broken Places by a man by the name of Max Cleland. Max Cleland was a U.S. senator from Georgia and Georgia's former Secretary of State. He was a decorated Vietnam veteran. Senator Cleland was appointed as eventually Administrator of the Veterans Administration under President Carter. I read the story of his life, and so we read now his, his, his triumphs and his successes. But what is the story behind Max Cleland's ascent to power? Max Cleland was a war veteran. He was a triple amputee. He had jumped out of a helicopter, the grenade exploded, and he lost both legs and an arm. His life was uh, many, many months in the uh, hospital, Walter Reed Hospital there on the East Coast and trying to just survive and recover from life. But when he finally did, he come out, of course, a triple amputee, and his life was confined now, he thought, to a wheelchair. They would push him, and, and one lady was taking him out for a stroll and come to a curb and, and, and misjudged the curb and dumped him out into the traffic, and the traffic barely missing him. It was a life filled with shame and frustration and sorrow, but life went on. 
Max Cleland decided that he would not end up in the bars like most Vietnam veterans. They ended up drinking themselves, their lives away, and drowning themselves, their sorrows in the bottle and wasting away. But he said, I'm going to make something out of my life. And so he went on the campaign trail and ran for his first office. He would work so tirelessly that blood would ooze out of the stumps uh, where his legs uh, entered into the uh, prosthesis. But he went on to accomplish great things. I learned a little lesson about brokenness several years ago when my wife and I were traveling. I don't remember whether we had the children that are not, but then when you pull the trailer and, and we were pulling a trailer and traveling and preaching in Louisiana and there with that trailer in tow and uh, with my truck we would go down the old washboard road and it would just kind of give it that along. And, and I had um, come to a place uh, where uh, I, I needed gas and so I pulled over to a little, a little wide spot in the road, a little service station and uh, as I customarily did, I would look around the rig and see if anything was wrong. And, and sure enough, as I came to, uh, to a place uh, where, where the hitch was and, and the tongue of the trailer, I noticed that there was a crack that had started, um, and uh, it was cracked up to the top on both sides. And I knew that if I had gone just a few miles further, then the tongue of the trailer would have broken and we probably would have wrecked. But... I asked the gentleman at the station, I said, is there anywhere around here that I can get this fixed? And he said, oh, yes, we have a, a welding shop here, and we can weld that back. And in my naivety and my ignorance, I, I asked the gentleman, I said, will it be strong enough to, to handle the trip that I'm breaking, or making? And he said, sir, I want to tell you, where this, uh, where this is welded, uh, it will be the strongest part of the entire trailer. And he said, it's going to be strong here, in essence, where it was broken. And so that's just kind of the way life is. God has a way of reaching into our problems and making something strong out of them and making us stronger than where we would have been before. And so, as we have underscored and punctuated today the fact that brokenness and pain and suffering and sorrow is a part of life. I suppose that it begs a question that, that really needs to be answered today. It's not enough just to talk about the brokenness and the heartache and the sorrow and the pain, but preacher, how do I get past my pain? How do I get over my brokenness? Can you tell me how to do that? Well, let's talk about it here for just a little bit. And so as we look at this, it is the question that begs to be answered today, how do I move forward? How do I get past this? It is the question that is the most difficult question of all mental health professionals combined. All the therapists, all the psychologists, the psychiatrists, the preachers, the pastors. And this is the greatest question that is to be answered. How do I heal from my hurt and my pain? And so the best and the clearest answer that we can find today, of course, is for a perusal through the inspired Word of God, the source that has the most to say about brokenness and recovery. It is called the Bible. It is not the writings of Mary Baker Eddy or Joseph Smith. It is not the writings of Sigmund Freud or Melton or Clark 
or Aristotle or Plato or Socrates, the philosophers and the sages of past eras. And so they pass on what they can, but there is one source that separates itself and stands above all others, and that is the Bible. Let's talk about it here a little bit. Let me begin by saying that when you lose someone, or you lose something that is dear to you, whether it is by death or by estrangement. The grief of loss and brokenness, we know, can be overwhelming and has been. Pain, sad memories, unanswered questions can and do haunt people for the rest of their lives, and they take them to the grave. You and me even feel, feel that, that somehow life will move on without healing, that you'll never get past that. Some of you have probably said to yourself, I'll never really laugh again. I'll never really be whole. My laughter will be a facade of an ear, but I'll never rejoice in my heart. But I want to assure you today that there is no way to grieve without pain. It's just part of the process. There is, in the Word of God, a healthy way to rebuild your broken world. And we're going to talk about that. This will allow you to move forward. You don't have to stay where you're at. You don't have to stay simply buried in the quagmire of your hurt and your sorrow and your pain. We're going to talk about it a little bit more today. Don't settle, I urge you, and I admonish you. Don't settle, sir, where you are today. Don't hold that pain in your heart so close that it will allow you to be drained of joy. It, it, you can work through your loss and your suffering, your sorrow. It will be slow. Yes, it will. But you will eventually get better if you recognize how you can get better and what ointment and physician can heal you today. I want to give you some points. And if you're here, at least take some mental notes and you might want to jot down some of these points. I think there's about five of them or so that I want to quickly move through. If you've made a mistake, if you're hurting, if you've lost someone, if you feel like life has been unfair to you, and somewhere, and I, I, I don't mean to, rap, to rip a scab off of your pain and your hurt today as you walk back through your graveyard of forgotten memories and you call to past. And I do this as a pastor. I, I, I walk people back through things that they say, no, I don't want to talk about them. It's too painful and it hurts too much. I don't want to talk about them. And I say the only way you're going to heal is for you to face your problem, face your lion, and deal with it. And so we do. We walk through the dusty archives of yesteryear many times. And so today I'm challenging you. Number one, here it is. Accept responsibility for your actions and make the necessary changes that you need to make. One problem is why some people never heal is they always blame someone else. It's the old shifting, blame-shifting game. It goes back to the garden. It goes back to, to Eve and Adam in the garden. Well, God, the woman. Well, the woman says the serpent and so forth. That's what Sigmund Freud refers to 
And when he says, find someone else to blame your problems on, that's why psychoanalysis really, it does good to a point, but, but there is a limit. That's why the Bible talks about looking up and owning and accepting responsibility and the mistakes you've made. Sir, young man, young lady, you brought your hurt and your pain here today. You made the mistake that night when you shouldn't have been out with him. You've lived with the shame, the sorrow, the remorse, the regret. The young man today that says, I can't get past the mistakes that I've made. I am another David. But I assure you today that there is a way. Let's look at David when he said, and here he is called the chief musician. And so he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the, what? The multitude of thy tender mercies blot out my transgressions. He did not say Bathsheba's transgressions. He did not say somebody else's but he said, blot out my transgressions. He said, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is forever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear, when thou judgest. And he says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Behold, thou, God, desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. David said, It's nobody's fault but mine. God, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against others, and I own up to my sin. That, my friend, is the first, the first, the first step in healing. I know people, I know people who are in hell today or die lost today that have never stepped foot back in a church for many, many, many years because somebody did them wrong. Somebody said something about them. Can I tell you that life is too short for that, my friend? Life is not for dead people. Life is for the living. And so it is that you can pick up and you can move on today. Just say, God, I acknowledge my fault and my error. But what if it was not your fault? Maybe, maybe as we said, you were driving along and out of nowhere you got broadsided and your world turned upside down and it become broken. Step number two is you've got to forgive. Somewhere, some way, somehow, no matter who did it, no matter how bad it hurt, no matter how wrong they were, you have got to forgive. David's problem, I told someone, a preacher just this last week that called and he made a horrible mistake. The cost is extremely high and he is extremely broken. What will I ever do? How can I ever go on? And I began to talk to him and I told him over the phone, long distance, you remind me of somebody I read about in the Bible by the name of David. David's problem was not that God did not forgive him. David's problem was that he could not and did not forgive himself. 
I want to assure you today that God is extremely rich in mercy. The long arm of God is able to reach you no matter how far you've gone and no matter what depths you have plummeted in sin. You may hate yourself and you may hate your sin, but I remind you today there is a God who loves you. There is a God who has forgiven you. And there is a God who wants to restore you. And his name is Jesus. Put your hands together and love him today. Oh, come on, come on, come on. If you're hurting, you ought to clap your hands with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul today. I read a book several years ago, years ago I would recommend to you if you, if, if you cannot forgive. It's called The Freedom, uh, or 70 times 7, The Freedom of Forgiveness. How many times will God forgive? And so let me move on. I recount the story here, one of the most, if not the most horrendous story that I have ever heard. It was a few years ago. I read about it in the papers. It was all over the news. A man had had uh, taken a young lady, I think a young college uh, student, and, uh, and, and this man uh, murdered this young lady. He raped her. He, 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 he stripped her of her virtue and, and uh, just a horrendous crime. And then he began to dismember her after murdering her. And then he buried her beautiful young body in the sand somewhere. And then, uh, of course, they found the man and they brought him to trial, and they convicted him of murder. They asked the young lady's mother if she had anything to say. The mother got up and went up to the front of the courtroom and confronted the man that had, that had brutally assaulted and murdered uh, her beautiful young daughter. And uh, the court was waiting in anticipation as she addressed this murder. And they and she looked at him and she said, Sir, I forgive you. And I read that and I said, No, I'm missing something here in the story. Nobody in their right mind could look at someone who has done such a, 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 a gruesome crime against their daughter and say, I forgive you. I thought in myself I could not have the capacity to do that. And the story went on. And people asked her, Ma'am, how could you find it in yourself to forgive the man who took your young daughter from you? She said, I'll tell you how I can forgive him. Said I, she said, I have suffered with this ever since my daughter was murdered. But here, I want to tell you, I refuse to give this man one more day of my life. Do we understand what forgiveness does? Forgiveness doesn't necessarily release the perpetrator. Forgiveness releases you, sir. It releases you, ma'am, and does not allow the enemy or someone who did you wrong to have one more day of your life. And so let's move on here today. Number one, or number two, forgive. 
And so, and so, number three is confront and accept the loss. Sounds easy, preacher, but let me cover it today. Confront and accept the loss. Confronting and accepting the loss. If, if, if the word there is if, if it is final. If it is final. I talked to someone recently whose life, who's, who, who had gone through a horrendous deal and, and lost the family and said, I will hold out hope until there is no hope to hold on to. Sir, if you've lost it somewhere, retrieve it. If you can't retrieve it, accept it. That's a part of healing. Life has to move forward. It has to move on in order for you to heal. Somewhere you've got to just say to yourself, it is what it is. It is what it is. Facing reality after a serious loss, we sometimes want to do something. We feel like we need to do just just something, just anything to dull the pain. Many, of course, turn to drugs and alcohol, oversleeping, internet overuse, or wanton promiscuity, which leaves you more vulnerable to addiction and further pain. I call it the downward spiral. There are several steps to suicide, several steps. It does not begin with the physical. It begins with the emotional, and it takes you down one step at a time. Healing will not come until you confront and accept your loss. Ignoring the pain caused by loss or sedating yourself with distractions will only work for a little while. No matter how fast and how far you run, sir and ma'am, it will eventually, it will eventually, your grief will overtake you. You cannot run far enough or fast enough. So the man I read about the other day, he was an avid runner. He ran miles every day. He ran every day to the point of exhaustion. It was unusual. It was not normal. It was not natural. He drove himself beyond the limits of human endurance until one man, a friend, looked at him and saw him as he come running in one day. And he knew there was more to the story And he called him by name and looked him in the eye. And he said, let me ask you, what are you running from? And the man bared his soul and healing began. Sure, you've got to let the pain out. Some internalize the pain which is destructive allowing yourself to cry or grieve in another way that feels natural. You've got to do. Talk to somebody who understands you and whom you trust. Find somebody, a pastor, a confidant. Don't talk to somebody you can't trust, but find somebody you can and pour your soul out that will hold it in confidence. Only by first acknowledging your grief can you begin to defeat it. When a a loss is fresh in your memory, your grief deserves full attention. We understand that. However, you should never, never allow the grieving process 
to go on very long because that is destructive. We are told that protracted grieving ultimately keeps you stuck in your state of loss, paralyzed by this thing called self-pity, and you're unable to move forward because you wallow in your sadness and your sorrow. Let me move on very quickly, very quickly today. I'll try not to be too lengthy. But number four, connect with people who care. Connect with people who care. I cannot, I don't have the time to tell you about the fact that you cannot be alone during a time of loss or sorrow. You've got to begin to heal. I, I, there are several examples I could cite today, but find you a small group to get involved in. Find you a circle of friends. Find you a fellowship. Become a part. The worst thing you can do is detach yourself. Become a recluse. Well, I'm here today, aren't I, preacher? I'm, I come to church. You can be in the crowd, but you can be alone. I'm talking about emotional connection. You've got to find somebody. You've got to find a people, a group, someone that you can connect with. And the other side of that is not only must you connect with some people, but you must disconnect with other people. Number five is distance yourself from critical people. And I'm going to try to hurry on here, but distance yourself from critical people. David said that. He said, oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Look what he's done and so forth. But you are a shield around about me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. The Lord, to the Lord, I cry aloud. And he answered me from my holy hill. I lay down and sleep. I wake up because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn against me on every side. And I like this right here. I really like this right here. It shows the humanity of David out of all the flowery phraseology. He says, Arise, O Lord, deliver me. O my God, strike all my enemies on the jaw. You ever want to just slap somebody? You ever get so tired of people talking about you and running you down? Well, you don't have to because God knows where you are and he'll take care of that if you put it in God's hands. Amen, amen. Oh, my God, strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From, uh, from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessings be on your people and so forth. Number six, hurriedly today. Turn to God and help uh, for help and submit to his will for your life. There are three words that are here that are key to rebuilding your broken world. The one word is turn. Another one is help. The third one is submit. I'm not going to belabor the point, but the term turn is where we get our word repentance. No wonder that's the first word in conversion when the Bible says repent and be baptized. 
It means not just, okay, I got caught and I'm sorry. Repent is a, is a is, let, let's, let's cast it in the context of the scripture in which it was given back in Bible days. It means that if you're traveling down the road and you're lost and, and you come across someone who is a native of the country and you say, do you know which way I am to go to find a certain place? Then the person in that day would say, repent and go the other direction. They was, that simply meant to them, turn around. That's what the word means. You cannot heal if you don't turn around. You can't keep doing what you've always been doing and get better. Somewhere you've got to stop your nastiness. You've got to stop your, 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 your business, your end and your attitude and so forth and repent of that and say, oh God, I submit myself to you today. And so... And so it is today. Help is the other word here, and I'm cutting through a lot of this, but help is the other word. David looked, and sometimes there was no one to help them. He turned to God. That's where the Bible word paraclete comes from. It means to come alongside of. That means the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is more than just a religious term. The, holy, the word uh, term Holy Ghost means comforter. Comforter. That means simply that when I am bent low beneath my load and I have the heavy back and the burdens of sin and guilt and shame upon my life, if I would submit to God and I would receive the Holy Ghost, then it means the paraclete will come along or the helper, the comforter will come along. And it means that, 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 that give me something to lift here. Where is a, uh, can we, uh, you, what do we got? Chair. I need a chair or something. Good, 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 good. All right, I've got this microphone in this hand. I'm going to carry this about five miles here because I like this chair. But you know what? When I get weary and tired and so forth, then there is a comforter that comes along beside me and helps me lift that. That's the way Jesus does, my friend. That's the way Jesus does. And I'm telling you, when nothing else can help you and nothing else can help, and the alcohol and the drugs and the promiscuity and your mother and your father and your brother and your sister, they can't help you. There is a God that will roll up his sleeve and reach down into your world and help you carry your burdens and carry your load from day to day. And can I tell you, let me tell you the rest of that when everybody else turns their back on you and they don't believe in you. The Bible says that Jesus, he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. He will be there with you unto the ends of the world. Musicians, come please. We're getting ready to close, but aren't you glad that you have a friend in him? And so, and so I close with this. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench or despise. Okay, Bible poetic phraseology. So be it. It means a whole lot more than that. 
the smoking flax is, of course, the lamp that is about to, that has flickered and just about ready to go out. And it, all it's doing now is smoking. Sometimes the light of life is almost extinguished and we feel there's nothing left and so they throw the smoking flax away in the garbage and it's hauled out. But the Bible says that God won't, won't quench a smoking flax or wick. But here's what I want to close with. A bruised reed you will not despise. The bruised reed is symbolic of, of the shepherd. Back in those days, roaming the Judean hills and herding the sheep. David was very familiar with that as a shepherd boy. And, and herding his sheep. They would oftentimes use that reed and they would cut it. They would play it. It would calm the sheep. It would calm the shepherd. But every once in a while, the wolf, the predator, the lion would get after the sheep. And the shepherd would put the reed that he spent a lot of time on and got just right would put it in the folds of his garments and chase after the predator and and try to round the sheep up and in the process of the running he would lose the reed and after he got the sheep all corralled and back and the wolf ran off, he would look for that reed when he would try, wanted to sit down and play, for the, play the, for the sheep and calm them. So he would go back and look. If he went back and he found it, and in the stampede of the sheep, it had been trampled and broken bruised he would look at that reed that he had spent much time on and probably have to throw it away get him another one that's the way some people do to us when they're through with us they throw us away but the great shepherd of the sheep when he finds that bruised reed he goes and retrieves it and with skillful hands, with healing hands, he begins to remold and reshape and rebuild. So it's kind of like the story of the old violin that was out of tune. Nobody wanted it, but the master got it. Can I tell you, ma'am, today, the master's got your life. The great shepherd of the sheep knows how badly bruised you are. He knows how, how you hurt, how your pain is. And he wants, he wants to heal. He wants to restore. Oh, I'm about 50% preacher. I, I'll never get there. No, no. That's not the will of God. The Bible says the, the devil hath come to kill and 
steal and destroy. But Jesus has come that they might have life. Period? No. And that more abundantly. I don't know what you've been through before you come to God. Or even the pain you've been through after you came to God. But God doesn't want to give you just life. He wants to give you abundant life. He wants to give you wholeness of life. Would you stand with us today, please? Let's bow our heads. Ma'am, sir, young person, I don't know what it was or how long ago it's been, but you don't have to carry that to your grave. The great shepherd wants to mend the broken reed today and restore the smoky flakes. And he wants to rebuild your broken world. And he can do that. He can do that. I think psychiatry and psychology and therapy, they say, give them at least 21 weeks of therapy. Jesus just needs five minutes. And he can fix your hurt and your pain.
Lord, we're going to do right now, I'm asking the prayer team, whatever you call them, to come forward, please. The elders. Right now, very strategically, God has placed us here just like this in the sanctuary. We have some ladies that can come also and help. We're going to sing it again with the heads bowed and eyes closed. And Zacchaeus, the word of the Lord has found you hiding behind the foliage of your world today. And he's saying, come down. He's saying, follow me. He's saying, I will heal you. Just come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Wouldn't you just like to be able to have some rest, some peace, and bury your past once and for all? I don't care if you've been in church 50 years. If you're carrying stuff you've not quite gotten over, you can get healed from that today. We're going to sing it again. Every eye bowed, every eye closed, and, and just, just maybe step out today. Say, I just need someone to pray with me. I need someone to love me. I need someone to care. He sits waiting in the sanctuary. Yes, yes, yes. He sits waiting. He sits waiting in the sanctuary. Someone to pray with. Pray with somebody. 
Somebody needs your help today. Yes. Amen. Yes.
All right, here's where we are right now. I feel like the Holy Ghost has spoken today and said there are several of you that are carrying hurt and grudges and pain. Somebody did you wrong and somebody hurt you. And I'm telling you right now, you've got to turn loose of it and give it to God. And when you do that, He will heal you and you can get on with your life and your victory in Him. Come on, let's push on through this for a few more moments here.
in the sanctuary. Mo- 